0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Love
0: Talk Radio.
1: Hey there, and thanks for listening to the Family Recovery Projects podcast. Join us every week to hear about our mission, why we do what we do, and how we can help your family navigate through the turbulence of getting treatment for a loved one.
0: Stay tuned. Hi, Jacqueline, can you hear me?
1: I can hear you. We are back.
0: Sorry about that, folks. We had some technical difficulties getting signed on uh, a few minutes ago, but we're online now. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, my name is Frank Salaya uh, with the Family Recovery Project. And one of the things that I started to think about in doing our last five blog or podcast, excuse me, is that I really felt a little remiss in that we really haven't taken the a, a, a time to be able to introduce Jacqueline to you, Jacqueline Sazie. And I would like to be able to just ask her a few questions so that you get to know her a little bit better and uh, possibly reach out to her based on, you know, what your particular needs might be and her expertise. Uh, with that, Jackie, is it okay if I ask you a few questions?
1: Of course. How exciting. Okay.
0: Um, I, I think that our listeners might be interested to hear a little bit about you, uh, about uh, some of your personal history, you Now, you know, where you come from and things of that nature.
1: Sure. Um, well, I came from my mom and my dad. <laughs> i'm just kidding <laughs> i couldn't resist <laughs> um I, left, I, was, <laughs> I was i was gonna open in, on
0: for that one <laughs> you
1: did you you know me better than that um so sorry about that okay uh i'm pulling it together um so i was born and raised um here in atlanta georgia And I actually grew up here. I went to elementary and middle school um, in a suburb of Atlanta. So it's kind of like uh, in Arizona, you know how you live in Gilbert, but if people, if someone from outside of Arizona asks you where you're from, you say you're from Phoenix. Right. So that's kind of how it is here in Atlanta. I lived in one of the suburbs of Atlanta um, called Dunwoody and but but basically, you know, if anyone asks, I say I was born and raised in Atlanta. Um, but, yeah, it was a small suburb, and I grew up there. And then when I was about 14, my parents got divorced. And um, so my mom and my brother and I moved to Marietta, which is another suburb. It's kind of like moving from Mesa to Gilbert. <laughs> that would be the equivalent of it. Um mm-hmm. I went to high school there, and then I went to um, Florida State University for a couple of months, and then things got a little hairy. But we'll talk about that a little bit later.
0: Okay. So, are there are there some things of personal interest that you might have just to kind of give people a glimpse into uh, what you like or don't like? Uh, see if they kind of relate to what you're you know what you're all about.
1: Oh wow. I like a lot of things. Um, I am really lucky in that a lot of things that for some people may be uh, like fun hobbies for me are my job. (laughs) Um, I've never, you know, I did kind of desk work for a while while in my twenties, but I've never really been like a nine to five job type of girl. I've, I've always liked having kind of a varied schedule and it's always been really important to me to do things that, you know, were like inspiring and that I felt enthusiastic about. And not that that's always been the case. I definitely have had jobs that were less than inspiring. But, you know, for the most part, I've always tried to to make that a priority in jobs that I get. And I really like to learn and I really like to read. And so I've managed to train myself pretty well in some areas that I really enjoy so that work kind of becomes like not really work, you know. And um, so what I've created for myself today is – these like three or four <laughs> sometimes three sometimes four jobs that are actually my interests, so my interests really are um you know helping people and just um and in whatever way I can, you know um, and mm-hmm. how that has how I've really been able to kind of target that is through my restorative exercise um so i love I just love learning about the human body and how it works and um disease and you know dysfunctions of the human body and i'm just i'm really i just really enjoy reading about how our systems work and how they work together and and all of that so that is definitely one of my interests um it's super nerdy but i really do read like anatomy textbooks for fun (laughs) because i
0: enjoy that
1: um yeah um and what else, what else, what else? I love, I have, well, you know this, I have three dogs that I absolutely adore and I do love animals and I've done some, how I, I ended up with three dogs is I volunteered for um, an an animal rescue for a little while. So that Mm -hmm. started my, my collection. And what else do I love? I, I just, I love reading. I love writing. I read a lot of murder mystery and, um, I read biographies, and I read a lot of sci-fi. I'm I'm extremely passionate about the sci-fi uh, world. Oh, Doctor Who. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan, which, of course, leads mm-hmm. into all kinds of areas, like Torchwood, and if there are any Whovians out there, they know what I'm talking about. Um, sure. Any Anything kind of geeky and nerdy, and, you know, I just get really into that kind of stuff. So this would be my personal
0: interest. But I think the underlying aspect of what you're basically talking about yourself is that you've always had an interest in, in self-improvement and then taking that to another level and helping others. Um and mm-hmm, I think that's mm-hmm. how I, when I, when I met you 10 years ago when you know my son needed treatment. Um, I have to take this for the record, that uh, Jacqueline was the only treatment uh, specialist uh, in the six years that uh, my son had. Uh, on his journey of being in and out of different centers, that was that saw him through from begin to end. So yeah. I think that that's when I I noticed that there was something uh, very different about you with respect to your commitment and your passion. Um, yeah. What was it that you think has brought you to that position to where you wanted to help young people that were battling substance abuse? Uh, well, well,
1: um, <clears throat> probably because I battled substance abuse myself. Um, You know, the reason I only made it through three months of college is because, (laughs) well, partially because I really, I don't like school. I just don't. Um, A lot of my learning and training and education I've done has been outside of the traditional school setting. And that's not anything against school. That's just me. I just, I don't work well in that kind of environment. Um, But but yeah, I, you know, I started drinking pretty regularly when I was like 16 or 17. Um and I had been, you know, without getting into a whole lot of, you know, my history, I I just grew up in um a very abusive environment and I had a lot of I was just a real messed up kid and a messed up teenager mm-hmm. and Um, You know, looking back, I was not ready to attend a state university that was ranked the number one party school in the nation at the time. Um, Because when I found alcohol, I was, you know, man, it just changed my life. And um, so, yeah, so I was pretty messed up. And I ended up in treatment myself when uh, about a month before my 20th birthday. Um, And... Well, I I'll talk a little bit I'm sure I'll talk a little bit during this podcast, but over the time that we're podcasting about the some of the misdiagnosis that happened and um and those kind of things that, that sent me kind of on a trip through twelve step programs and um and AA and and then, you know, eventually to good old fashioned psychotherapy where I figured out what was really going on with me <laughs> and that I am, you know, not an alcoholic and that I did not belong in a 12 step program and um which brought, you know, kind of brings me to where I am today. So, so back then, you know, when I first started, I started working for the program that I got sober in um in 1996 when I had a little over a year sober. I started working for them and, and I really, you know, I had, I was very passionate about um, helping young people because I do feel like, and I felt then that it's such an under, not under, misunderstood population of, of people. And I still feel that way. Um, You know, I'm almost 40 and I still really have a, a soft spot for teenagers because I do feel like they're just, you know, they get a bad rap and they don't get treated well. So so that's really where that came from was, you know, some of my own experience and some of the um you know, some of the freedom and and initial happiness I found from being in a 12 step program and getting counseling and things like that. I really wanted to I really wanted to give that back and I really wanted to to help people like me who had been through some of the stuff that I had been through. Um, kind of find their way, so so that's why that's how I ended up meeting your son ten years later.
0: <laughs> well, it's been the, it, it's been an experience. Like you know, your life experience has been rich with a lot of different things that helped not only my son but a, a lot of others. And I think you know, getting uh, to our topic today, I think I should say that. Given our discussions uh, this last week, this is going to be a two-part series. I just want to let everybody know it's just such a deep pool of uh, information and uh, misinformation and whatever you want to call it. It's something that's going to take us a little bit longer to kind of talk through uh, and share Mm -hmm. with our audience. And uh, you posted a a really nice article uh, that gave your perspective uh, with respect to uh, the idea of codependency, and with that the enabling and all the other labeling that goes along with it um mm-hmm. if I were to ask you uh, how would you introduce our audience As I, we've all heard it and, and it's it's so overused it almost has no meaning anymore except for a negative right. connotation um right how, how would you introduce that to our audience in a way that maybe is going to bring some perspective back into to, in terms of what we want to do here at the Family Recovery project? Sure.
1: Well, like you just said, you know, one of the things I noticed, especially the 12 years that I was in the, you know, the, the drug and alcohol treatment field um, is how often that term gets thrown around. And, you know, when I, when I first went into, cause the first I didn't go through treatment twice. <laughs> so the first place I went was kind of like a lockdown hospital situation. And, and then it, it, was a long-term treatment facility for wards of the state um, for a couple of the states here down South, but for the rest of us that came from other like Georgia and other places, it was like a 28 day, you know, facility. But so, you know, I, I I was there with some, some girls who've been through some really, really tough stuff. And um, one of the things they had me do when I, you know, I don't remember, I mean, obviously it's it's foggy because it was 20 years ago, but it's also foggy because I was foggy, but someone handed me the book, Codependent No More, because I had a family member that um, I spent a lot of time talking about and a lot of time worrying about, and they said, you know, you need to read this book. Now, granted, this family member was really, really messed up. (laughs) Now, I was too. Um, but this was, this was someone I really, really cared about deeply and was really concerned about and, um, was part of why I was, I had gotten help because I was, you know, I, I I cared so much about this person and felt guilty at my, I guess, um, the part I might have had to play in where he was in his life. And those were some things I was really, really struggling with at that time. So, I remember reading the book and I remember being like, Oh wow, well, this makes sense. You know, um, some of the stuff that she talked about in that book really did nail me and it was like, Oh yeah, I do feel this way and I do feel that way and but I remember that when I finished the book, I felt like I had a good understanding of why I, you know, why it was, it was healthier for me in the long run to not feel so responsible for this person or anyone for that matter. Um, And I had an awareness of what that meant and what that looked like and, and some tools, you know, I walked away from reading that book with, you know, a lot of relief and a lot of understanding of why, you know, kind of where that came from within me and what I could do and how I could do it differently. And, and that was kind of the end of it. You know, it was, it was, I don't want to say I was cured, but, you know, once I had that awareness, it was like, oh, okay, this, this makes logical sense. And so that was my understanding of codependency then, you know, it was, um, you know, you've just got to look at some things differently. And, and it, and it was um, feeling overly responsible for another person's happiness in life, except that. There were some things that I felt responsible for because I was kind of responsible for them. <laughs> you know, um, there were sure. some some things that had happened where I had looked the other way, um, and I had, uh, you know, probably contributed to some of the things that happened in his life because I was more concerned about me than I was about him. And so all of that was really eye opening for me and. Um, and, and really just kind of helped me along with processing it, you know, and talking to someone else about it. And what I took from that was don't contribute to other people's crap, (laughs) you know, like if you don't want to feel guilty and feel responsible, if someone else's life is going down the tubes, then don't contribute. But that doesn't mean don't care. You know, I think there's a difference between I care about this person and it is breaking my heart that they are destroying themselves and their lives and 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 their relationships with people, and I feel overly responsible for what they're doing. I think those are two very different things, but I feel like somewhere, you know, because later on down the line, so this is, you know, the mid to late 90s, um, somewhere down the line I started hearing the word codependence run around a lot, you know, and... Uh, it was always kind of, it was like if anybody expressed concern for a family member or a loved one, and it, and it was affecting them, you know, it was really affecting them. Like they, they were always thinking about this person or they didn't feel like they could go into work because of this person or whatever, they would be called codependent. And I remember being like, I don't remember that being the definition. <laughs> you know? Um, right. and it would just kind of, you know, and, and what really struck me is it would almost end there. It was like, you got this label of codependent and then now what, you know, like there was no, so here's what you do with that. Or, um, you know, and, and again, I don't want to indict everyone in, you know, 12 step programs or in treatment programs. I'm not saying that but this was my experience This is what I saw. In um, some of the circles that that the treatment circles and, and twelve step circles that I was in, it was it was just kind of this label, like oh well, you're just codependent, and right. um, and you know over the years that just that really started to bother me, and I really and and I just you know <laughs> this is something I definitely have worked on over the years, but I would just kind of assume like oh I, I just must be wrong, you know, if I think this is not the correct definition of codependence and I'm probably wrong about it. And, you know, we just kind of go on about my day, which is kind of codependent <laughs> um, right. you know, to just assume that I was wrong or, you know, whatever the definition of codependence is today. But eventually I stopped doing that and went, wait a minute, I, you know, why do I, why is my initial thought that I'm probably wrong? And, and so I, I really started thinking some of those things through and, and asking questions and talking about them and, and doing some of my own research and um and finding out that this this whole um uh kind of codependent it's kind of taken on a life of its own it's become this um like this so th- this is this is ultimately grand scheme of things big picture what what bothers me about this term and there are others like this and i'm sure you know once i you'll know what i'm talking about frank where we take a, a label like this And we just apply it to people who seem to exhibit um, one or two of the criteria of what we think this label means without much, you know, research or thought. And then we try to treat them all the same way. You know, we try to tell them, you know, here's where you're wrong. Here's what you need to do. Um, You know, and and to the extent where I've heard people say that, you know, parents were – complicit in the death of their children because they were so codependent, you know, and, and I just, that really bothers me. Um, That, that practice of let's find a label so we can group everybody together and give them this blanket ideology of something that will, you know, fix it or at least, I don't know, make them feel bad. (laughs) You know, like that just always seemed to be what, what people would would come away with when they would be termed you know they would be deemed codependent was like oh i'm a bad parent or i'm a bad brother or i'm a bad sister or i'm overly dependent on someone that means there's something wrong with me and i just it's not that simple you know um right. i think well, like i said <laughs> oh, go ahead
0: no, I'm going to say I was going to interject. I mean, you know what kind of a history geek I am uh, with respect to just how we got here. Um, mm-hmm. Not only with mm-hmm. COVID, but a lot of other issues. You were I love about through, you. Uh, you were going through this at a very uh, cathartic age of self-help books uh, at the time that you were going through because right. Beatty's book, so uh, Melody Beatty, I should say, uh, more correctly. Uh, when she wrote Codependent No More, I mean, it was in 1986, she sold 8 million copies. Right. Uh, just prior to that time, Norwood's book, Woman Who Loved Too Much, um, it mm-hmm. sold 2.5 million copies and it spawned um, hundreds, if not thousands, of self-help groups to 12-step groups across the country that, for women that were addicted to men. Um uh, mm-hmm. so and then three <laughs> years before that, there was a book that was uh, written about adult children of alcoholics, which spawned the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the uh, an Alon group specifically for that. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it it really took a hold and got popularized really quickly because it really didn't have to be defined. I mean, it wasn't really like an actual diagnosis for me because they would tell me that I love my son too much. Right. It made no sense to. I'm like, no. well, how, how does how does that work in terms of what you're telling me? I mean, I get the point that you're telling me to back off and let you do what you do, but I don't think you have the position with respect to not only your 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 assessment process, but to make that judgment of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I right. Mean, I'm here asking, I'm here asking for help, and you know, you telling me that I'm codependent, and you'd like to get me to be more interdependent once we start doing the semantics game. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like thinking, well, I don't think I can love my child enough. I can understand that you maybe want me to set different boundaries. Um, but right. if you could be clear with that and kind of give me an outline of how that works. And um, as you say in your article, I mean, I I would ask for definition. Explain it mm-hmm. to me.
1: Right. And
0: they really couldn't do it. So it, it, it ended up being something that I, I discounted. Uh, not completely, because I knew that I had work to do on my side of the street. Uh but I d I didn't right. really feel like it was a formal uh clinical process for them to be able to be able to you know, to be able to do it. I mean I think that it you know, there there there's a huge uh segment of the the, the practitioners that don't believe that this is actually a clinical diagnosis. You know, one it's not in the diagnostic right. statistical manual. Uh, it's not measured it's really difficult to to put your your head around um It's talked about within the context of other behavioral disorders, but it you know i, I you know I'm just fascinated by the fact that codependency got so attached to addiction it became a very right. negative yeah. it also it also got really attached to battered women um mm-hmm. you know i mean it, 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 but it was always picking on the weak i always picking on that, that that aspect of human suffering, where we're asking for help, and all you're going to do is tell us that we're weak, and that we mm-hmm. are ones that are helping to cause the problem. Right, um, and that you know that that pop psychology aspect of it. One, it lacks criteria. Uh, not everybody agrees that it's true. Um, there's one very right. influential PhD uh, a, a psychotherapist that said he. He basically the analogy that he uses is that it's like um, it's like going in and looking at a menu at, in a Chinese restaurant. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is on it, and if it isn't, you can get it anyway. Right? You know what I mean? You just, yep. you just they just keep piling it on, piling it on, and I, I think right. that that's what you were talking about in your article.
1: Yes, yes. Well, and it's funny because I, you know, in in preparing for tonight's podcast, I. I Just did a quick, you know, Google search of, you know, codependency. I just typed in codependency. And from that, I received, you know, four or five different definitions (laughs) of the word. And my favorite, I think, is the one that um, comes from Merriam-Webster, and it says, a psychological condition or a relationship in which a person is controlled or manipulated by another who is affected with a pathological condition. So here's my issue with, with that, Um, you know, having been in relationships where I was controlled and manipulated by another, why, why is it considered co dependency when really, why can't we just say, Oh, you're being controlled and manipulated by a pathological liar? (laughs) Like why, you know what I mean? And, And I think I, but that that was definitely not my understanding of the definition of codependency. And so it was just interesting that that came up. And then, but I feel like that just goes to my point more where the word just started getting thrown around and attached to um, to people who were victimized. Because we have such a hard time in this country dealing with victims. You know, um, right. we, it, It's it's got this like nasty, people have such an aversion to that word. Um, and I get it, you know, I, I don't want to feel like I'm a victim either, but sometimes I am. <laughs> you know, the word itself has a factual definition um, and with no positive or negative connotation. It's a word that applies to a person in a certain situation. You know, if you are a victim, you are being victimized by someone, and that can happen, and that's okay. Um, it doesn't right. mean that you have to, you know, look – spend, you know, months and years looking at how you got yourself into a place to be victimized. Like, no, 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 no. It, it's okay. You were victimized by someone who is a jerk and that's okay. And so therefore you are a victim, but now you can choose to leave that situation and you will no longer be a victim of that
0: situation, <laughs> you know? Right. Which, um, which in that case, in that in that case then, Whoever you're working with, then should help you to enable to become empowered. I mean, I, I guess my my right, basic problem right. with it is, is that the word itself, in it, from a clinical standpoint, and the way that we get treated, I mean, you got treated in, on your side of the fence and us at the same time, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have the ability to be able to to discriminate between those who are codependent and those that are not.
1: Right, you know, I mean, right.
0: It, it just, it's like we're all the same, and it's all negative. And, and we were talking earlier, I remember, uh, you know, uh, reading and, and, and taking psychology and behavioral classes that I had where enabling wasn't always a negative thing. Uh, right. You can enable your child with love and support and positive reinforcement to get better grades. Um, right. That's not bad. But yet... Right. All of a sudden, all that kind of – now when we do that and we love on them, now they're saying, well, now you're kind of a helicopter parent now. So whatever right. is out there in terms of how that behavioral system and the analysis and the this absolute totalitarian need to have to go out and have evidence for everything, um, it, 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 it really is emasculating. It takes everything away from you. I mean, everything that you right. think is good about what you might want to have to offer to support somebody – Right somehow gets turned into a weakness. It's turned into, uh, you know, something that is not good and that you're helping somebody to do something even worse than that. Right. Uh, And I I just, I basically, you know, that's why I liked your article and I think people should, if they have a chance, to go back and and take a look and reread it Um, because it really doesn't. It's not like we have full self-esteem. We're not being dishonest. Uh, Everybody has their points of denial. Uh, but to be able to kind of lump all those of into, into this non-clinical enabling, because in working with parents, I, I mean, I think you would probably confirm this with me, is, you know, one of the things that they talk even in first meetings up to the 100th meeting is, is that I, I have to stop being an enabler. And they, they, they you know, their head lowers, their shoulders droop. Um, hate right. Because it just takes the life out of them. Um, And and a lot of times when my son wanted to go out and get high, uh, it didn't really matter what I was doing at that moment. It it was a choice that he was making that I had to deal with. Um, But somehow I got to be part of that problem in terms of that overall analysis or assessment that was being done. Um, and And I find it interesting because you were one of the therapists that didn't treat me that way. Um, Mm -hmm. When I would start to feel self-pity, you would go, don't allow yourself to go there because it's not going to be a good place for you to process this. Um, Mm -hmm. That was straight. That was straight. That was actionable for me. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. to hear that and and the other one that we'll talk about that, that goes into this too is the fact that when we're enabling and we don't see it, that we're somehow delusional. Um, right. You know, when we're in there, it's like, well, okay, well, you want to check for twenty five thousand, and you're 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 calling me names. Uh, I'm here because my son, I'm thinking, might die at any moment now. Um, so how do you explain this paradigm that you're weaving for me? You know, um, and I didn't meet very many people. I should say I met very. I don't think I met anybody that was able to actually describe it except for the way that they wanted to control the situation and possibly outcome. But as you know, mm-hmm. uh, with respect to my son, we had a lot of negative outcomes. So mm-hmm. I got to the point where I, w- I would flip it and ask the therapist, well, you're an enabler too. Right. Uh,
1: you right.
0: know what I mean? I mean, if, yeah. it, if, it, if it's going to apply to everybody, you're enabling me to to feel like, I need you to make me more of a a whole person to be able to pay more money to be able to figure out how we're going to change the outcome. So this labeling, it it, it just gets so confusing for for family and loved ones, especially parents that are, you know, in that front line um, that you just just can't accept it for what it is. And and, and as good as, as, as Beati's book was, it really was based more on relationships than it was about addiction. And I'm just really curious about how this, I mean, the the treatment professionals in addiction and substance abuse latched onto this thing like nobody's business. Mm -hmm. Um, And and maybe it goes back to what you were talking a little about and what my, uh, you know, uh, uh, research has shown is it goes back to that AA concept, that 12 step uh, because they treat it, as a family a disease, which it is, but they really put us in boxes that were really very, very negative. Um, mm-hmm. There had to be, you know, uh, there was no question that I was lying for my son. There was no question that I was going to cover up for his behavior, and they didn't even know that. You know, they didn't, they, they didn't know what I was doing on a day-to-day basis in terms of like, you know, I made mistakes, but they weren't made, They weren't made to prove a pop theory. Concept of me being right. completely dependent upon my son's addiction, you know, and right. it made absolutely no sense to me. So anyway, that's my little soapbox talk on that one, and I, I hope that other parents don't. And I, I really do get into have to encourage them to leave that word behind, just for a, long enough to be able to hear what they're saying and what we yeah. have to offer in terms of helping to remove that stigma from that work from yeah. them in their lives.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well and and help them to because, you know, I mean a lot of the parents that I worked with did things for their children while they were using and abusing drugs and alcohol that they felt were them being helpful. Ultimately, a lot of the things that they did were harmful, and they were not helpful at all. But, you know, you've kind of got to go through that to see, oh, wait a minute, I've got to love my kid differently now. You know, things are different now. And I think just attaching, just looking at a parent and going, well, you're codependent, I, I think that throws a parent so far off their axis, and they feel like they can't make any decisions about their child. And they can't do anything to help them because I don't, you know, I don't know any parent. Again, I'm not a parent. And let me please reiterate that I am not a doctor or a psychologist or even a counselor anymore. Um, This is all based on, you know, my self-study and my experience and, and some of the thinking I've and research I've done around, you know, this subject. But, um, you know, I really think what we want to do is, is, teach parents how to, how the love for their child doesn't have to change and their desire to absolutely fix everything. You know, I mean, I, again, never been a parent, but I can definitely understand why it, you know, a, a mother would, you know, get the call in the middle of the night that her 16 year old son is in jail and why she rushes to the jail to get him out. You know, that is, that is not codependence. That is normal human behavior. Um, Not wanting your child to be in pain and not wanting your child to be in, you know, in, in the possibility of being harmed is, is all kinds of natural and nothing wrong with that. Um, And, and that's where I think we can really help people to see, yes, you love your kid and, here's how you can show that love for them in a way that's going to be helpful in, in a situation that you have never been in. You know, that's the other thing, you know, very few, there were some, but very few parents I worked with had even any experience with drugs, you know, or, or that world or how any of that worked. And, you know, their kids were making drug deals at their front door and they had no idea because they just didn't know what that looked like. And, um, you know, I think ultimately I think what we've got to remember and, and and I think part of why this bothers me so much and and some of the, you know, what how I would see this kind of slip away over time and and I would have to bring myself back to it and I still do today um is that the addict is making choices. And they are responsible for the consequences of their choices. And to turn around and look at the people around them and decide that they are somehow culpable, even if out of their naivete or their natural desire to, you know, take care of their child, they have allowed things to happen or they have enabled things to happen, the addict is still responsible for their actions, period. And that's what I think we start to lose a little bit when we get into, um, you know, I, I think the disease concept is, um, I think its heart is in the right place, but I do think over time it's started to, you know, those lines have gotten a little bit blurred, and and we've started to go, well, they're not responsible for anything, um, when when n- no, they absolutely are, and the people around them are just doing the best that they can, um, and I I do not think it is helpful to addicted individuals to not allow them to suffer those consequences. So, you know, I really think that it's a lot of what we can help people with. And, and, you know, I really think this, you know, my, because, you know, I've been, I will rant about this (laughs) randomly. uh, You know, we've been talking about some of this stuff for the past couple of years and I will, you know, every now and then go off on codependence specifically, but I think Um, There's definitely other terms like this in the um, treatment and 12-step and um, self-help world where, you know, we've got to be careful not to let these things become, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like accusatory of the families around them. You know, I think we've got to remember who ultimately is to blame, and, and yes, I'm going to use the word blame. I know a lot of people aren't going to like that, um, but I think we've got to blame who is to blame for the fact that, you know, our family's fallen apart, and that's the addict. <laughs> that is the person right. that chose to start doing drugs or start drinking heavily because ultimately that first drink or that
0: first drug is a choice. Um, well, it, it it does get, and it gets so twisted that you have siblings and other children in a family calling their mom or dad an enabler. Right. And what they don't understand is, is that they would, in all probability, do the same thing for them. Right. But, you know, you don't, right. you, it's like that perspective and that, the depth of what needs to take place for people to understand that this is a process of human relations. and. Mm-hmm. you know for science to think that they can go ahead and put a, a, you know a qualifier and a quanti- quantifier on every thought and emotion that we have as human beings um just defies logic to me right because as right. we as we as we continue to attempt to force this medical model over something that is so abstract um yeah you know, when they talk about pathology or ideology which is a study of causes you know you you start to to me, I think you start to make <laughs> stuff up, you yeah. know, um, yeah. because it fits that, search, that, that certain uh, set of circumstances or your situation. Um, and it becomes a very manipulated process, both emotionally and intellectually. And I think that one, one of the things that we will continue to talk about this in our next segment is how to get parents to feel empowered enough to be able to say, no, that's enough. Right. You know. Right. This is where I am, and I if, if I did something wrong, I I I didn't do it because I'm diseased. Um, right. You know, or somehow or another, now I need to take a pill because I have a chemical imbalance because of your perceived need of me having to be so dependent upon my child that I'm not a whole person without doing that. It right. Just, it, it just gets really skittish, man. I mean, it's just like, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I i used to listen to these things, and because I was a student of, you know, a behavioral student and, and was involved with, you know, empirical analysis of data and things when I was in, in college, it made no sense to me at all. Um, mm-hmm. When when my son was, was in, involved more with individual treatment, I could have one-on-one, but when it transferred to... Treatment centers, it got looser and looser and looser, you know. And I was right. thinking, well, another, there's some something's breaking down here somewhere. But right. I would try to have a conversation with somebody in treatment, and they would either become condescending or defensive with me, um, or they would just ignore me completely. You know, yeah. and just kind of like, you know what, you'll see. In the end, it's all going to work out because that's how I got sober. I'm like, okay, I kind of, I'm, I'm happy for <laughs> you. <laughs> right. But, but what is it that you can share with us to help us to bring a, a, maybe just a little bit of peace maybe every other day into our house? Because that, that's what we're looking mm. for. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not looking for, uh, I just, you know, put a post on where I, I think that when I, I meet with parents for the first time, they've been going through this for a, a, maybe a period of a year to five years or even longer, and they want all the answers all at once. Mm-hmm. And it just, doesn't ha- it just doesn't happen that way. And I think maybe that's right. Maybe the smoke code dependency theory is part of that. It's just one right. way of very quickly being able to say, "Hey, you're enabling. You have to stop. You need to turn your back." Um, so they're saying we're not a tough love facility, but you know, you know, you get that kind of conflicting information, and you walk out of there scratching your head, like, you know, I just <clears throat> I don't know what to think now. Right. Because I I I think I'm I'm troubled. Maybe I need to go find right. my own counselor now. Right, um, and it just, it just keeps it just keeps adding and adding to that uh, the dilemma. You know the irony of the situation, yeah. but I, I do agree. I mean, our our children make choices, uh, yeah, and we've talked about this. I mean, unless a parent is is giving their child money to buy drugs and they're getting high with them, which is a a, a very very small percentage of parents that are out there. Um, you know, it, it, at least with respect to people that I've met in treatment, I should say that that, that have, would have to be the qualifier that, um, you know, you really can't be making these blanket statements as you mentioned earlier. It, it just yeah. really does more harm than good. It really does. Yep. And, I, and, I, and I think that's why we need a second program uh, mm-hmm. to be able to kind of work through a more formalized outline, you know, with respect to what parents can do. um, mm-hmm. You know, look up to our website, up to our, 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 our Facebook page, um, and, and, and other social media to see what we're going to be talking about here within the next few days to get ready, um, because this is a very neat and, a, and it's a very difficult process for uh, parents and families to go through. Um, and as you mentioned, when you were in treatment, it worked a very negative and had a very negative effect on you also. Um, uh-huh. And it's time. It's time to empower. It's time to work from a, a position of abundance and not a deficit.
1: And as right. long as they
0: keep us in a deficit mode in terms of what we're thinking, um, it, it, you know, we're we're just not going to be able to shift the paradigm to get the help that people and information that people need. Um, right. So, um, with that, uh, we're running out of time, Jacqueline. Uh, do you want to close the show and, and invite everybody back to come back and hear what we have to say next week?
1: Sure, definitely come back next week. We'll 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 be continuing this discussion, and I've got three or four more definitions of codependency I can read you. So um, you can find us at www.thefamilyrecoveryproject.com, com on Facebook as well, and Jacqueline or Frank at thefamilyrecoveryproject.com. com. Let us know what you think. Love to hear your feedback. Talk to you
0: later. All right, Jackie. Bye bye.
1: 18 plus.